Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Afra Afsharapur, Professor of Law at the University of California, Davis, and Darren Rosenblum, Professor of Law at McGill University. We'll be discussing their essay, Power and Play in the C-Suite, which was recently published in Inequality Inquiry. I'll have a link to the essay in the show notes for the episode. Afra, Darren, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. We're really excited to share this piece with you, Andrew. Yeah, we're big fans. You've both written in recent years about inequality in the corporate hierarchy. And I wonder if we could start this conversation with what motivated you to write this essay together and what motivated this topic of power and play in the C-suite. Afra and Martin Gelter organized this wonderful conference on comparative board issues. And as part of that, we started having deeper conversations about gender diversity issues. And we kept turning to thinking about rather how can we include women to why it was that women aren't represented and then thinking critically about what makes men run the corporate world. And then at some point, it was like a light bulb went off for the two of us that it's money, which motivates almost everything anyway. So that's our entree into this topic. And then once we started digging, it seemed pretty rich. The other thing I would say is Darren has done terrific work on board diversity, for example, and we've seen a lot of scholarship on the issue of diversity in the board, but there has actually been very little scholarly focus on the lack of diversity and the enormous gender disparities that are in the C-suite. So part of what we were really trying to do with this paper is also to facilitate and further that conversation so that the focus on the C-suite becomes hopefully as pronounced as the focus on the board of directors. Which is, even though we haven't really worked on it, it's commensurate with what's going on in the rest of the world. So both France and Germany have recently passed mandates for gender diversity in the C-suite. So I think it's becoming more of a topic. I'd like to talk a little bit about the C-suite. Darren, you mentioned that money is a big driver here for many people to reach the job title in a corporate hierarchy where your title starts with chief and it ends with officer. That's in a sense, you've arrived, uh, you are at the top of the hierarchy, you are at the top of the pay scale for a company. But you point out that even within that group that's at the top of the hierarchy, there is a hierarchy even among the chief officers, the CXOs. Can you talk a little bit about that hierarchy and how is compensation divvied up among members of that CXO hierarchy? So maybe I'll take that first. So I was just working through a lot of the data on this for a couple of other projects as well as this one. So there's a pretty stubborn gap at the top of the ladder in the C-suite. Generally, women make up about 24% 
of C-suite positions. But those numbers are actually a lot lower when you look specifically at the various roles in the C-suite. So if you look at the CEO position, for example, in the Fortune 500, women make up around the high of 8% as of this year. If you look at the CFO position, the chief financial officer position, typically they might be the second most highly compensated person in the company. Women now make up about 15% of the CFO position in the C-suite. And the numbers are similarly low, actually lower for people of color, for example. So if you look at the number of S&P 500 companies with Black chief financial officers, that number has doubled to 20 in 2021. But that's a really small number to begin with. As we say in the paper, quoting a study that's been done, The barrier isn't just this sort of glass ceiling at the very top, but also an invisible wall that sidelines women and people of color from the kinds of roles that then become the stepping stone to the CEO position. So we call it the pink collar of the C-suite in the paper. We often see women chief executives and the head of human resources, or now what you're seeing is a lot of women becoming general counsels. So about a third of GCs in the Fortune 500 are women. But those positions don't lead to the top of the C-suite, particularly the CEO role. And they also rarely constitute the highest, most compensated positions within corporations. We included in the paper data on named executive officers. So NEOs are basically the chief executive officer, the chief financial officer, and then the most highly paid other executive officers of the corporation and publicly traded companies have to disclose that information. If you look at the number of NEOs, the number of women holding NEO positions in the Fortune 500 is now 14%. So in 2020, that's a big increase from 2012 when it was 8%, but it's still a pretty small number in comparison to general C-suite positions. And also very few companies have more than one woman as an NEO. The vast majority of NEOs at companies are generally men. And as we say in the paper, there's a double gender gap for the NEO position. So very few women hold such positions. And when they do, they actually earn less than men. There are a number of studies that have been done by entities like Morningstar that could show the gender pay gap even amongst the NEO positions. It's also, I'll add that part of the reason that we started thinking about this is that there's a lot of social science data about other professions that when they feminize, they become less paid. So historically, teachers had been men, and then they became women and started making less money. Likewise for nurses, and there are several other professions, and a lot of data on that is pretty conclusive. We thought that if his professions feminize, they become less well-paid. It would only make sense that the converse would be true. And it does seem that way, even within the NEO positions, as Afra just said. Within the CXO hierarchy, we have this double gender gap of fewer women in these roles, fewer women in the CEO role, and when they do obtain those roles, a lower compensation. And Afra, you talk about the propensity of certain CXO roles to lead to the plumbest job of all, and that's to be CEO. You you talk about some of the pink collar positions, legal HR, for example, that may not lead to the chief executive officer role. Could you talk a little bit about 
what does lead to the chief executive officer role. You talk in the essay about a competition, a tournament within the firm. Could you talk about that tournament? And are there any gender dynamics at play in that tournament? Maybe I'll let Darren address the tournament a little bit more, but I want to talk a little bit about the gender dynamics of what companies select for when they select for the CEO position. We talk specifically about masculinity contexts in the paper. And one of the things that we find and social scientists have found is that generally one of the traits that companies look for when looking for CEOs is they're looking for confidence or overconfident in some ways. And there are a lot of incentives for essentially men, right, to exhibit those types of leadership skills. And so what you're really finding is that in general, there's a higher likelihood that an overconfident manager rather than just a more rational manager is going to get promoted to the CEO position. And then that has, as we talk about in the papers, certain gender dynamics about how then women and men compete for those positions. Darren, do you want to talk about the competition? How people compete does come out differently for men and women. And so here's where the tournament theory comes in. Part of what goes on in the corporate elite is that there's a heightened uncertainty with the responsibilities that come with these CXO positions. And in a sense, that heightened uncertainty is part of why it's so highly compensated, right? That Firms are entrusting people to handle uncertain situations, but that in the positions leading up to the C-suite or the CEO position, there's uncertainty as well. And that whereas men and women tend to compete equally in many other respects or most other respects, when there's substantial uncertainty, men seem to outcompete women. And part of that, I think, or at least we postulate that it links up to some of the performative pressures that women face. Naomi Kahn and Nancy Levitt and June Carbone are working on a book called Shafted that articulates what they describe as a triple bind. So the double bind, of course, is famous, that women have to look feminine but compete and work in a masculine fashion. The third part of that triple bind is that women have to also be ethical. They have to be rules. And part of that rule following piece, which we see consistently, is that it makes it harder for women to compete in uncertain situations. So we really think that is part of what's driving the glass ceiling at the CXO level. And particularly at the P&L level, the pink collar jobs, part of the reason they're accessible for women is they involve less uncertainty, perhaps. In some ways, there are for a lot of those jobs, like the general counsel job, there's a stepping stone process within the company itself. The work that June and Nancy and Naomi have done is you know, really built on some of the work that's been done also about how women are basically punished if they come across as being very overconfident, all the things that we want in some ways when we're trying to recruit chief executive officers, they're punished if they conform to those norms and they're punished if they fail to adhere to those norms. It's part of the way that these stereotypes really undermine women all through their rise 
to the leadership level, to the CEO type of position. And you don't see, at least within the research, the same kind of triple bind punishment for positions like the general counsel position or what you see now, lots of women and women of color, particularly being promoted into the chief diversity officer position. When we talk about executive pay. One of the recurring themes of corporate law is one person's executive compensation is another person's rent-seeking. And you talk about the potential for rent-seeking behavior on the part of CXOs, particularly of the CEO level. Could you talk about that? And do we see potential gendered differences in the rent-seeking aspect as well? This is where we bring in capture theory. And it's really pretty clear that there's a big incentive for CEOs and the group of people who are in line to become CEOs to engage in this rent-seeking behavior. Part of what's going on is, and I think it's the flip side of that uncertainty piece, there's a way in which they can capitalize on the fact that they are displaying the overconfidence and the ability to handle uncertainty that defines them as being particularly capable of serving in these roles. And so essentially, they establish themselves as being a class of people who are uniquely capable of serving in these roles. And Roosevelt Moss Canner's work in her book, The Men and Women of the Corporation, which is now probably about 40 years old, articulated how men essentially create a system of reproduction by which they create people who are like them, bringing them up through the hierarchy. And in that sense, they play this capture game. So what does that look like in the C-suite? Probably what it looks like is that men bring up people who they groom to replace them either within the firm or at another firm. And there is some sort of piece of the old boys club, which is that you mentor someone and then they'll pay you back by putting you on their board. And that's why a lot of board members are former executives. The old boys club is really, I think, functions in this capture fashion. And the real ringing of the bell that alerted us to this is the quantity of sums that we're talking about, that we're talking about the most highly remunerated labor in the history of the world. If you look at Tim Cook's compensation, which is 1,500 times the average worker, it's just an astronomical number. You could even pose the question this way, is it possible that there isn't capture or rent-seeking going on when the stakes are that high? And you see it once they get into those positions in terms of the decisions that the CEO has a lot of influence on. So I've worked on other work with respect to overpayment in mergers and acquisitions transactions and both the types of behavioral biases that play a role in those types of transactions and how much overconfidence of CEOs drives, for example, large public companies, big M&A, but then also how much they capture in terms of additional compensation as a result of those types of transactions. And there are some studies that seem to indicate that women CEOs behave differently in those contexts from male CEOs. Why that is, I think, is harder to tease out. Is it that boards, for example, supervise what a woman CEO does more than a male CEO. We don't know the answer to all of those things, but you could see how the incentives for 
rent-seeking and capture are really heightened in that CEO position. And I wonder, there's some work done on this by Devin Corbato and Mitsu Gulati in their book, Acting White, and the related Law Review article that they had published prior, in which they articulate the ways in which people of color are punished for certain kinds of risk-taking as they move up the corporate hierarchy. And we certainly see that with regard to women. Certainly people made that case with regard to Carly Fiorina way back when. I don't think we could say that about Elizabeth Holmes because that was clearly criminal behavior. But I do wonder if something similar is going on now with Jane Frazier at the top of sin, that she's being slammed for decisions that had a man been making these decisions to excise unprofitable subs, that they might be lauded and the share price would bump up. So I do think there could be a piece of glass cliff action going on here, which does replicate itself. When we think about gender disparities or disparities writ large in the case of the C-suite, to what extent does law address or could law address those disparities? What extent does it not really address those disparities? And what are the potential limits of law in helping to fix this problem? We talk in the paper a little bit about the limits of anti-discrimination law, particularly when we're looking at elite job markets such as this. I think it's very challenging for a woman who is passed over for the CEO position necessarily to sue alleging discrimination, partly because of fear of backlash, partly because exactly as Darren said earlier, because the characteristics that people are selecting for are so uncertain because there aren't specific rules of the game that you can point out to. And so I think it is very challenging to really use anti-discrimination law to address disparities within the C-suite. So in the paper, what we do is talk a little bit about the possibilities for corporate governance and the potential for corporate governance rules and regulations to incentivize behaviors that address these sort of disparities. And so some of that might include greater amount of pressure from institutional investors to really have companies disclose information about the trajectory of leadership at the company. And you're starting to see that over the last several years where institutional investors are asking for a lot more data with respect to the diversity of the workforce and the executive team beyond just the board of directors. For a long time, we've been asking for this information with respect to the board, but now what we're seeing is a lot more investor pressure for companies to disclose this information publicly beyond the board of directors. And then as Darren said, in some jurisdictions, you're, what you're starting to see is this initial foray into mandating diversity beyond just the board of directors as well. We've seen a lot of different mandates for board diversity, but I think the C-suite will be much more challenging to mandate than the board. In some ways, the board is the easy part on these issues, but you're you're starting to see at least some push on that element and just a lot more focus on the top roles. And you can see that even in the number of women and people of color who've become CFOs over the past three years. That number has increased really significantly, partly because there has been this sustained focus, both from reinvigoration of the racial justice movement with respect to corporations, as well as greater amounts of discussion about the continued gender disparities that we're seeing in the upper echelons of the C-suite. It's also worth noting that California's past two mandates 
in recent years, SBA 26 and AB 979, which grapple with diversity on boards. I do think that the increased attention to diversity among elite corporate positions, even if it's not focused on the C-suite, raises the question of why there's less representation in the C-suite itself. And I think that's part of the reason we're seeing a bump up in numbers with CFOs, for example. I would agree with Offer that it's going to be harder to regulate the C-suite for a bunch of reasons, mainly because these positions are unitary. So even if we look back and the recently departed Lonnie Guineer, who was one of my mentors, did some really interesting work on diversification of legislative power. And one of the things that she argued for were elections that were proportional, which works really well for a legislature. You can vote for a party, but it doesn't work so well when you're voting for one person. It's hard to move away from a non-winner-takes-all system. And it's the same thing in the C-suite situation. And in a sense, you almost see that same controversy going on in the NFL with the whole failure of the Rooney Rule debate. That it's just very hard to regulate inclusion when you're looking for one leader. You can mandate having a diverse pool, but even that's challenging. Although the plus side here, the more positive story that we also allude to at the end of the paper is also that board diversity might have follow-on effects. There is some research that seems to suggest that more diverse boards then select for more diverse senior executives at companies. And so that might make an impact with respect to who you're seeing in the CEO and the CFO position. The increase in board diversity might also make an impact in terms of this question of compensation of CEOs. So the compensation committee plays a really significant role in setting the compensation of the CEO. With respect to that, so far, the evidence is mixed. You know, having more women on compensation committees, does that place any kind of pressure on the compensation of the CEO role? But we also haven't had that many women as leaders on compensation committees, and there, there hasn't been a history of a significant critical mass of women on those committees. So one of the things that we hope that future research looks at is whether excessive CEO compensation can somehow be mitigated by having women and other more diverse board members on important committees such as the Compensation Committee. As Afra noted, when Jane Fraser was named CEO, the head of the nominating committee at City was a woman. So that's a good example of how a more diverse board could improve C-suite diversity. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation and from your essay? I think we crafted this piece really as an essay. It would be hard to come up with some categorical empirical proofs of what we're arguing. But my main goal, and I'd be curious to hear what offers would be, is to invite other researchers to interrogate this question. There's been so much research on executive comp, and it's been such a politically charged question. And it seems so patent to us that it has a very gendered aspect to it. So to the extent that people engaged in that conversation acknowledge and recognize the extent to which it's a gendered phenomenon, I would be very content. 
When we were doing the research on executive compensation, there's practically no reference to the issue of gender and racial disparities within the executive group. And it was a little bit like surprising to us. There's data that some entities have gathered, but there's really no discussion of how the significance of the gap with respect to gender and race in those positions and how that might play a role in executive compensation. And so I hope that those scholars who are doing the work on executive compensation and kind of proposing new solutions also think about those gaps in a more focused way than we have thus far. As as Darren said, this essay is really intended to provoke thought and discussion within the leaders and to hopefully inspire, for example, future research. So, for example, whether as we see a greater number of women and diverse board members, are we going to actually see any kind of changes with respect to executive compensation or with respect to employee compensation generally or with respect to the disparities between executive and employee compensation? I think there's a lot more room for both empirical as well as qualitative research on these issues. Our guest has been Afrav Sharapur. Professor of Law at the University of California, Davis, and Darren Rosenblum, Professor of Law at McGill University. We've discussed their essay, Power and Play in the C-Suite, which was recently published in Inequality Inquiry. I'll add a link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Afra, Darren, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.